coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. I don't have a ton of time left with my folks, and I want to be more intentional about the relationship that I have with them over this, whatever it ends up being, this next five or 10 years, God willing. And, and, and it's that level of intention that, one, you're either pre-planning for yourself intentionally, or as I alluded to before, you are dealing with something that will come into your life. Suddenly, a, one of your children is struggling in school. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 113. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Eshleman. Jeff is is an executive coach with 30 years of experience from combat in Iraq to the corporate boardroom. He's a sought-after expert for building and scaling results-driven teams. He believes hiring the right people, equipping them with the tools they need to be successful, and then holding them accountable for results is the secret to exceptional business success. He knows creating culture through attracting top talent, intentional onboarding, and rigorous top grading are critical for winning with people. Jeff, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Absolutely, Natalia. Absolutely delighted to be with you. And and what's interesting to me, I, I do want to talk eventually about the, the military connection because I find some of my best guests have military experience and kind of leverage that into the corporate business leadership space. But before we dive into any of those kinds of things, what, what really is interesting to me is yesterday I attended a networking event and there was a, a speaker who presented um, as a business consultant and talked about one of the main issues he talked about had to do with retaining your people. Right, that the 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 time frame of turnover today, even with Gen Xers and some of the older members of the workforce, is significantly less than it used to be, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, there are more opportunities and people have more ambitions. I, I get that there are many variables at play, but it really is, I think, critical for people to um, hire correctly and then do everything within their power to retain them, develop them, build great teams around them or integrate them into teams and all of that. So I probably have to take a half a step back and ask you first to give us a little bit of background on how you got to where you are. But if you're able still to hold on to the question of what is your take on specifically in, in the work that you do about building you know, quality teams, hiring the right people, onboarding them, and doing everything within your power to minimize turnover, which can be costly in dollars, can be costly in hours, can be costly in morale. So the, the floor is yours. Take it away, Jeff. Would love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. And, and definitely an opportunity cost whenever you have, whenever you have turnover. So yeah, my, my career trajectory is in the home building industry. I'm a bit of a unicorn in the fact that I work for one company the entire time. It was acquired a couple of times, but it went from a private company to a Fortune 500 to a full-blown public company. And so my career trajectory started in the field early as a manager on site, managing new home construction, 
leading the people on the site, dealing with customers. Um, later on in my career, I started getting promoted through progressive levels of management and leadership. And then I basically spent the last 12 years of my career as, a, as an executive VP, really running the organization. So of, a, of 150 team members, I had about 80 folks on my teams and leadership to me. And it, it really boils down to people. It's, it's the, the thing that I do like to say about leadership is it's, it's long game. And in one, in one sense, I was fortunate that I worked at an organization for that long. I, I had the pleasure of working with people the whole 30 years, which is, you know, kind of unique again. Um, but when you have that long and you're going to be in an organization and it doesn't have to be right. Let's, let's go back to even your original question about the turnover that's occurring these days. If you still approach it as leadership is the long game and you're going to invest in people. And again, as you alluded to that for me really starts before they're even team members, right? So how do you recruit for a particular position being really specific, not only about what the job description is, but really understanding how that role is going to play out in your organization. And then once you get from the recruiting to the interview process, it's critical, at least in my mind, to have both the hiring manager and the HR department involved, and then a very specific process that includes, and, and I believe that the hiring manager has to be the person who literally makes the selection and not HR. And I know there's, I know there's some debate, not, not necessarily debate, but that can, that can oftentimes go different ways. So I'm a big fan of, of the hiring manager making the selection, but I'm also a big fan of getting multiple um, people in the organization involved in that hire people that might not be in the direct uh, reporting uh, line or folks that may be in different departments, that's critical. And then as you alluded to onboarding. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Of Could I actually cut in for a second? Cause I oh, do sure. want to hear about your onboarding and I think it's a really important, but let's stay with hiring for just a moment because what I'm, what I find more and more is that people make a lot of mistakes when it comes to hiring. There's something called, again, this relates to yesterday's presentation, but I, but it's something I've been learning about and experienced myself. I'm a former head of school, so I did plenty of hiring myself. Um, there's something called confirmation bias. And so confirmation bias is often, we want the person in front of us to be the person that we're going to hire. Cause obviously the more we have to interview, the more time it takes away. And wouldn't it be great if the first person we find is the right person and we just move on to what we really need to do. So we almost project what we want that person to be and lead them into the outcome or the, the answer that we want to hear from them, such as, are you a team player? Yeah, sure. I'm a team player. So that's just an example of where hiring could go sideways quickly for sure. What what is your experience? I know you talked about having the hiring the the manager or the individual who would be overseeing that person, this the you know the site the site manager, et cetera, team manager being the one who makes the final hire. But regardless, what experience have you had where you see things maybe go sideways? And more importantly, what advice would you have for anyone who is looking to hire to ensure that they get the real answers as much as possible, as opposed to some kind of you know, um, 
unrealistic facade so that a person is just sort of like putting their best foot forward, but not necessarily reflecting what the long-term experience and relationship with that person would be like. Right. And, and so the very first and most basic one is, you know, ask open-ended questions versus yes or no. When you're in that interview process, asking scenario questions is the best way that I found. When you, when you ask a particular question and you're trying to get the root of what their experience is, oftentimes that's the best way to get somebody talking about scenarios that have happened for them in the past. And that's oftentimes where you get the best insight into how, how they've actually encountered business and their particular role. So I, I think that is like one of the most specific. The other thing is the pressure that you feel as a leader and a manager when you're trying to make this higher. It's not only the confirmation bias piece, but you know, the these days, like like it seems like it's been this way for a long, long time. We're always asked to do, you know, more with less, right? And then when you have to make a new hire because you're either replacing someone or you're adding somebody to the team because of growth. I mean, rarely is there an opportunity where you're doing that in advance of the need. So that's an additional pressure that you feel as, as a leader and a manager. And then I'm also a big fan of having whoever is the top leader. And again, you have to kind of figure out what the structure is in your particular organization. But in my particular situation, even though I was a VP of ops and running 80% of the company, I still had to have my final candidate vetted by my boss. It was more of an informal, but it was just one last window. And, and this is specific to your question, because what they're doing is they're just trying to peek under the covers a little bit and see if they can expose what your confirmation bias might have been. So an outside authoritative opinion on your final decision is a good way to do it. You know, I, I like a few things about that. I'm going to focus on one, and then we do have to talk about onboarding. But um, when I, uh, to use a different example with, with I think, a similar point, when I was, one thing that I talk to people about all the time when communication is to avoid email as a means of communication for things that have, let's call it emotional elements to them, relational elements to them, because we're really not good at truly understanding intent from text, right? right? There's so much of our communication that's tone and body language and affect and spacing and things like this. And so what I didn't know back in the day or maybe didn't care enough to be disciplined with was if I would get a heated email, let's say a, a, as a school leader, so a parent you know, was complaining about something or a staff member and, and it was sent via email, you know, what I've learned to do is take those conversations out of email and put it in person or at least over the phone, something to humanize the dialogue. But you can oftentimes say something that you'll come to regret, and it's really hard to pull it back. So I would have my assistant head of school or somebody else read an email before I would send it to make sure that the intent was clear, that there wasn't any type of vindictive or other, you know, undesired element there so that it would it would be as professional as possible. And so I think that that's an important piece for all of us to understand as well when it comes to leadership. You talked about having a boss or somebody above you that would sign off on it. But I think 
we have to be humble enough as leaders to possibly even involve somebody below us or par- perhaps a peer of ours in a different, you know, in a different company that you're just going to give you a- another perspective. And that's why I think it's so important for leaders to have mentors, for leaders to have peers that they could turn to, like my mastermind group, for example, because that allows you to get that feedback. So anyway, coming back to that point, you know, we might think we've got 30 years of experience and we're just really good at what we do, but we always have a blind spot or more. And so I, I just sort of emphasizing that point, we want to make sure that we're not in any way allowing those blind spots or those agendas or those flaws in our character, because we all have them sure. to affect important things like hiring, conversations, relationship building, things like that. So with that said, I want to give the floor back to you. Talk about the onboarding process, as well as maybe even going beyond the initial onboarding to ensure that people are as comfortable, integrated, and ultimately happy and engaged as possible. What, what would what would be your advice there? Sure. So I'm a big fan of um, like the sports analogy where you're going to have the new player on the team and they go into the locker room and their jerseys hanging in the locker already with their name on the back of it. That type of spirit, right? So I used to send all of my new hires a, a shirt, a company shirt before they'd even started. Just a quick thank you note from me, like a literal handwritten note. Yeah, I'm that guy. And welcome them to the organization. And then once they get there, especially on day one, I mean, I had an old boss that used to say, you know, when you start anything new like this, it's almost like you're in kindergarten, right? And you're showing up for the first day of school and we should make these folks feel as welcome as be, whether that's having their desk space all put together or a, a plant in their office or people on the, taking them around the, if you work in an office setting where you can take them around and introduce them to people. And then I think one of the most specific things that's had the most power for me in that folly was the having like a, what do we used to call it? Like an onboarding buddy. So it's generally somebody that's in your, sphere of your group that's, you know, at least been with the company a couple of years and they have a hand. I mean, of course they have a day job, but they're responsible that if you have any questions that you can't get answered from the normal, you know, onboarding and procedural things, go to your onboarding buddy and ask the question. And if they can't answer it, they'll at least be able to find you the right person to be able to help. And, and I think those have been some just really simple things that you can do that make a ton of difference. I love it. And one thing that was mentioned yesterday in this talk is that in today's environment, because so many people are remote, the the old way of doing things, which might even be more in line with what you're describing, Jeff, of peeking over somebody's shoulder if you don't know how to do something or asking a, quote, innocent question because you don't want to look stupid. You don't want to look like you're not getting it. Um, those options are less available because of the fact that many people are, are remote or more isolated than before. But I like this idea of having the buddy because regardless of environment, if you have somebody who's been assigned to answer questions for you, you automatically have a go-to. And what's interesting is I have a client who runs a nonprofit and he has somebody who has experience that he brought on to manage the office and manage a lot of the back end. They run, they run camps for, for teens at risk or in risk. Uh, so it's a very complicated 
um, type of environment with lots of fundraising and other activities and programs. And there were times when this person was dropping the ball and frustrating the boss. And in our work together, he realized after I shared with him the situational leadership model of Ken Blanchard, that delegating, which is the ultimate goal, is step number four in the model. But the first step is directing. And so even if somebody comes to you with experience, they need to be guided and directed first and then coached and supported until they could eventually get to a point where you could truly delegate to them. Very rare is the individual who could walk in on day one and just immediately plug and play. So that's why, that's why those pieces are really so important. And um, I'm going to actually flip the conversation now, if I can, for a moment, away from the people you bring on to the pe to to the people who are bringing people on. In other words, to the executives, because I know you coach executives, and I know you focus on helping leaders be successful, but also balanced, and also finding real, I guess you would say, joy and satisfaction, feelings of success in their work. So I'm curious to know, first of all, what, what got you to this place? I don't know if it was a personal experience. Um, I don't know if it was feedback from other people, but you specifically talk about helping executives create a lifestyle where success and harmony coexist. So um, there's some curiosity on my end about all of that. Would love to get your take and, and how, in fact, do you help the executives to find those? Sure. And, and so I've got some really specific processes that I that I use with those executives, but I will go to the kind of origin story. And so unfortunately, you know, like most things, the this breakthrough for me is born out of difficulty. Right. And so I've had experiences and times in my life where my life was not in harmony um, to the fact of where I've been you know, more than 100 pounds overweight or you know, on the verge of bankruptcy. And unfortunately I've had a divorce and I'm not proud of any of those things, but they were things that were crucible moments for me that made me wake up and smell of coffee, quite frankly, and implement some different things in my life, listening to different people, applying different principles, activating those things in my life. And of course I was a busy executive and I had all of these roles that were playing out in my life that were husband and father and grandfather and all these, uh, you, you know, the personal, the, your, your own personal well-being. And I, I personally believe that's where it starts, right? So if you're not taking care of yourself individually, how would you ever have the strength to be a, a good husband or a, a good father, things of that nature? And so the, the things that I use in my process, Naftali, I use a one-page plan that I learned in business. And so I help my clients create a one-page plan for their life that gives them a North Star. I have a very effective, what I call day of Zen process, which allows me to check out on my day-to-day -day life because I have a ton going. And of course, life comes at us pretty quick, right? And it's it's if it's not the changes of our own making, it's the changes that life deals us, right? Those those left hooks or those straight out gut punches that are global pandemics. And that happens to us all. Right. And so we have to have some process in place. And then maybe I'll save carpe diem for you, because I'm sure we'll get into a more specific, like how you make uh, that's that's how I would say how you make the one plate page plan actionable, how you operationalize the one page plan. Mm, interesting. So when you talk about just to dig down a little bit deeper, maybe on the you know some of the verbiage from the original question, 
you talk about success and harmony. Um, if if you were describing that to somebody, right, you're trying to give them a visualization of what that looks like for them. So it may be, maybe it's, you know, on a hammock, white, white sand underneath, sipping a pina colada. Like what does that practically look like for people? And, and without going too much into the specifics, what would you say are some of the key elements that you focus on <clears throat> that ultimately bring people to that place that you're working with them to get to? Sure. And, and probably the most specific thing that I would say is it's just being intentional, right? Because again, as I've alluded to before, busy executives, leadership, we have all these roles in our life outside of our work. And when life is coming at us pretty quick, we can tend to get, you know, focused on one of them. And and sometimes, you know, appropriately so if it's a big project at work, or like we just discussed before, if if you have a hiring need and that's putting pressure on the rest of the team, like that creates upset conditions in your life. It, and that's if it's not your physical condition or if you have a relationship with somebody that is strained or for, for in my particular case, I've got aging parents. And if, if I wasn't really intentional enough, Dolly, I could let this next five years go by and just do the same thing that I've always done. But part of this transition for me, like out of corporate and into this more autonomous lifestyle that I have is I, I don't have a ton of time left with my folks. And I want to be more intentional about the relationship that I have with them over this, whatever it ends up being this next five or 10 years, God willing. And, and, and it's that level of intention that, one, you're either pre-planning for yourself intentionally, or as I alluded to before, you are dealing with something that will come into your life. Suddenly, a, one of your children is struggling in school and they need a, a different level of engagement to help them get over the hump. And like, where does that time come from, right? It, it's going to come away from your exercise time or if you watch TV or it's going to come away from your work project but you will have to make a conscious decision. Or if you're not making a conscious decision, you're gonna put your energy over there towards your child, which might be very appropriate. And then if you don't make that decision consciously, where's it gonna come from? Now you're missing workouts for two weeks in a row or something of that nature. And then ultimately we all know how it works. You're yeah. gonna pay a price. Right, I love the intentionality piece and obviously thinking big picture and then plugging in the specifics. So let's talk intentionality, but on a much more um, limited scale and maybe even a lighter scale. If you could be, if you could spend one hour with a person who you never would otherwise meet, and that person could be living today or or not, historical figure, who would it be? Hmm. Well, I, I would pick probably almost any president or an Elon Musk or a, somebody like that that is is a big thinker that gets a lot of stuff done whether whether you agree with you know everything that either and again it wouldn't matter for me party political i would just love to spend time i, I an iconic figure for me is colin powell right so he was a military leader at the time where i was in the military he he to me is the essence of leadership right and so i would love to spend like that just dawned on me, but that would be a perfect example. 
Okay, so I'm, you, you've tickled my curiosity here. What about Colin Powell in particular makes you say that he is the epitome? And this is, again, I'm not digging politically now at all. I'm just curious to know because oftentimes, you know, it's interesting. And then I do want to get the answer to this question, but I want to take it back a half a step if I can first. <clears throat> you know, oftentimes people associate leadership with a title. So manager, chief executive, school leader, whatever it might be. Uh, we we know you and I know and many others know as well that leadership can can exist at any level, right? You could lead up, you could lead across, you could lead through your words, you could lead through your actions, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously, leadership manifests in a variety of ways. Yet, for the most part, you ask somebody who's a great leader, they'll say Abraham Lincoln or Gandhi or Mandela or whomever. They'll think of somebody with either a formal title or an informal title that managed to do something big, right? MLK, you know, somebody who did something big and changed history or something along those lines. What is it about Powell in particular, in your case, that brought him to the top of your, let's call it leadership totem pole and uh, and, and, and that you would identify the, the desire to be with him? Right. And so a couple of things specifically, first of all, was his, like when he started his military career, to, to be a African-American um, and then become an officer and then have the kind of distinguished career that he had right up through the Joint Chiefs and, and Secretary, right? And so to, to face that type of adversity and ex excel in spite of that, to me, is, is heroic. And he was a, he was a, a, a line commander in the Vietnam era. So he would have been like a lieutenant and a captain. And I think he might've even made colonel in the Vietnam era, which was a very tough, you know, difficult time in American history. And then he, in my opinion, he used that experience and then he leveraged his leadership ability as he continued to grow in his career. And then take the example of the conflict that I was in, in the Gulf war in the early nineties, and America or the world or however that ended up playing out approached that situation very, very differently than the Vietnam conflict. And I think it was him specifically that played a big leadership role and, and how, you know, whether you believe that was the right way to do it or not, I'm just giving you my opinion. He yeah. leveraged his leadership ability and he, he always, it, it felt to me that probably like, he always rose to the greater good, right? He was always looking out for, you know, the the soldier that was in his in his command. Yeah, and and that actually reminded me in your answer that you spent time um, serving in the Gulf War, which I I was actually a student in Israel uh, at that time. So being in the Gulf War, watching it from a distance, of course, being indirectly involved because of the fact that the Iraqis were shooting missiles. Um, at Israel as a mm -hmm. way of sort of provoking, right. but being able to see leadership, I don't, I don't know that you ever physically met Colin Powell, you know, during your time in Iraq and all, but the point is being able to observe it from within, as opposed to from without, you know, seeing it from what you're seeing going on on the tactical levels or, you know, more, more, more direct, as opposed to, let's say through the media, um, I think gives you an insight. It gives you a perspective which is a great lesson, I think, in general, coming back to, let's say, leadership in general, that when you could tap into the wisdom of people, 
or the experiences of people who have seen it firsthand have gone through that. You know, the, one of the things that I think distinguish great leaders also on top of what you also shared is humility, right? The ability right. to not think just because people have promoted you that you have all the answers and being willing to talk to other people, ask them questions, get their perspective, um, I think could be really, really valuable. Now, my last piece here in this segment, um, I know you you talked about this before. So if that's the answer again, no problem. If you want to take it in a different direction, that's fine as well. What has been your biggest mistake, Jeff, over the years uh, in life? And, 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 and what have you learned from it? I would say the biggest mistake that I made, and, and we didn't get into my, like I skipped pretty quickly past my early history, but not one credit hour of college. I went right from high school, right into the military, right from the military and right into this organization for 30 years. So all of my training was was on the job. I never really considered myself a, a really good student. So I just wanted to get into my career and and move myself forward. And fortunately, I was able to be fairly, quote unquote, successful doing it this way. So my biggest regret overall was, was not taking the time to get formally educated early. Now I was able to, I think, for the most part, compensate for that by doing a lot of self-study. But then it translated into my early career, not following. And that really led to that kind of crucible moment that I was talking about, or that crucible era in like 2008 and nine, where I was really overweight and about to be bankrupt and all these other things. And it was really, it was the fact that I had not, I think I, I felt like I had learned enough to get a job and I, and I went to work and I was getting promotions and improving, but I wasn't focused on the self-development piece. And after I had that crucible era for myself, like it is, it has almost exclusively been about my own personal awareness, my own personal development, humbling myself and surrounding myself with good quality voices that, that you can, you can tap into that will tell you the truth about who you are being. Okay, so that's a great segue, I think, into our next segment, as we talk about uh, the rapid fire, because I think that some of the things I'm going to ask you here really align with your last message. And the first one is, if you could plaster a message on a massive billboard, what would it be? Well, I love this uh, William James, which is human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes of mind. And I just love the fact that and, and this is what I've proven to myself through the years is that, you know, if, if you can think differently and you can decide differently and then you can get yourself to act differently, I'm, what I've proven to myself, Natali, is there's, there's literally nothing that's not possible. Okay, awesome. All right, we're going to keep it nice and short here as we move forward. A quote that you live by or think about often. The last line of my core written purpose is, I want to be happy with what I have while I pursue what I want. That's Jim nice. Ross. Okay, fantastic. What are you not very good at? Administrative <laughs> things. Okay. Expressing then, my feelings. <laughs> oh, well, you did a good job with us today. That's for sure. And then the last one, <clears throat> which I ask all of my guests is, for, excuse me, for a productivity tip that helps people get more done. I used the word earlier, which was be intentional. A great way to do that is create power blocks in your schedule where you are going to work 
on the work that is the most important thing that you need to do that day. I should have invited you to my uh, accelerator program because that was part of my messaging the other day. All right. So let everybody know, listening to our episode today and Lead to Succeed, where they can find you, reach out to you, um, benefit from your experience and possibly, you know, work with you. Absolutely. So the best social places to find me are either on LinkedIn or YouTube. The best way to find me is on my website, which is jeffeschleman.com. I'll just spell that out since it's a little, it's a little alphabet, which is J-E-F-F-E-S-C-H-L-I-M-A-N. And that's the best place in that probably. Okay, awesome. So Jeff, this has been a lot of fun. I will ask you though, before we go for one final life lesson. Uh, the final life lesson would be the application. So we talked about before with William James and the, the thinking. The thinking is an important part. The goal setting is an important part. They're all important parts. But the activity, the actions you take, that's why we create the goals to, to direct our actions in a meaningful way. And and. Honestly, that's where I see most people. If it's if it's the lack of direction, it's the action consistently. Awesome. Well, Jeff, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure meeting you. Pleasure hearing your story. Pleasure learning from the various experiences that you had and and the wisdom that you have to give to your clients and to the world at large. Um, I wish you tremendous success, and I thank you so much for joining me today. And looking forward to opportunities you know, to get to know you better in the future. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 